It turns out the secret to a meaningful, happy, blessed life is one that is entirely in service to something greater than yourself, that demands more of yourself than you're often willing to give, that includes difficulty, pain, struggle. We know this because if you want to lift weights and you want to be a bodybuilder, you know there's pain involved in that. There's pain. And you know all the slogan, you know the t-shirts, what the t-shirts say? No pain, no gain. We know it. As you're getting older and there's growing pains, there's difficulties. It turns out that the pain and the suffering and the difficulty, if it's involved in growth, in service, in love, it's far more meaningful than the quick, easy, ready-made. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Against all odds, Adams won the lottery twice, once in 1985 and again in 1986. The New Jersey native won $5.4 million, but then she gambled it all away in Atlantic City. She told the New York Times in 1993 that the publicity she received led to a bombardment of requests for financial assistance. I was known, she said, and I couldn't go anywhere without being recognized. I have uh, six more stories here of people who struck it rich and their world fell apart. And they ended up in really difficult circumstances. And over and over again, they say, I wish it never happened. The book of Ecclesiastes is written by, uh, at least at least part of it, written by someone who knows what they're talking about because they've been in that situation. Talk about anything that comes to your mind in terms of if I had power or riches or glory or might or honor or prestige, what would I do with it? The writer of Ecclesiastes steps back and says, oh, yes, I've been there. I've thought about that. You name it. I've thought about it. And one by one in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author says, name it. Name something that sounds really great and important. It's something the world goes after. And I'll name something that is fleeting. Something that doesn't last. Something that will end up making you miserable and possibly ruining your life. When I studied in London, I studied with a department that was almost entirely atheist. And the director of the program, really interesting and wonderful philosopher, was once interviewed and asked, what is your favorite book ever written? And it surprised me. He said, Ecclesiastes. It's a book that tries to say, if you want to figure out what life is all about, and you don't have anything beyond yourself, get ready for great disappointment. And it's amazing to me that our world still chases after the very same things. We know that turning people into idols is a bad idea. And yet when we turn on American Idol, we see ourselves following somebody who is, used to be like us and sat where we sat. And now they're going to make it big and we root them on and we think, oh, if only I could make it big and forgetting. Story after story of celebrities who say, oh, what I would give to be able to walk down the street and nobody know who I am. 
we hear about people winning the lottery just for a second, just for a second, we think, oh, I wish I could win that without my church knowing about it. And wouldn't that be great? And then we find out. I, the only personal story I have along that line was when I was at Fried Hardeman, the dean of students was on who wants to be a millionaire. Won a lot of money. And she said later that it was one of the worst experiences of her life. Not worse like, you know, having money in your hand is bad. It's the life that changes and are you ready for it? Everybody you ever know comes to your front door asking for help and the tugs on your heartstrings begin and you wonder what's the right thing to do with this. The responsibility that comes with great ability. Life changed. People began to look at her differently. It's amazing how Ecclesiastes says, I just want you to understand what you're getting into. These things carry with them consequences, prices. There's a cost to fame. There's a cost to riches. There's a cost to just chasing after whatever your body craves. There's a limit. And when you get to it, you think by climbing the mountain, the beautiful thing you're looking for is at the top of the mountain. You get to the top of the mountain and you realize it's not what you thought it would be. And what happened? What did you have to give up to get there? It's interesting that the author of Ecclesiastes is not an atheist. All through the book, the author is saying there is a God. He's in control of the world. In fact, you ought to fear God and keep his commandments. But he just can't help but grapple with the the sense of hopelessness, the meaninglessness of it all, this side of eternity. And a great phrase to kind of keep in mind when you're thinking about how to read Ecclesiastes is the phrase under the sun. He says over and over again, you know, there's just everything is meaningless under the sun, not just the daytime, but also the nighttime. But you can't help but contrast that since we're looking for the gospel here with the fact that the author of the book, we call it Ecclesiastes, but the word actually goes back to a Greek word. I know it's a Hebrew book, but the Greek equivalent, you hear Ecclesiastes, maybe you hear the ecclesia in that. We learned this morning that ecclesia doesn't actually mean called out. Looks like it does, but it actually means the congregation. And Ecclesiastes is the teacher of the congregation. Ecclesiastes is the one who stands up and declares a message to the gathered group. And his message is, things are pretty bad. In the New Testament, the teacher is Jesus Christ. And when he stands up to declare the message before the congregation there in the synagogue, he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing about the spirit of God who's come to what? He's come to reverse the curse on the very people who are not most likely to chase after these things. In other words, it's not God's spirit has come to glorify the rich. It's God's come to give the gospel to the poor. It's not God's come to bring great glory to those who have everything. God's come to bind up the brokenhearted. The teacher of righteousness in the New Testament who speaks to the congregation says God has come to bring blessing to those who are meek. They will inherit the earth. To those who suffer now, 
they will be comforted. Ecclesiastes is one book that seems to suggest that everything under the S-U-N, it can be very dismal. But if you see it through the lens of living your life under the S-O-N, you'll recognize that everything begins to take on a new meaning. The end of the book says, here is what I conclude. Fear God and keep his commandments. But we know what it means to fear God and keep his commandments because we saw in Christ what it means to fully fulfill the law. So while it's true that you can find meaning and purpose in this world in God, you come to understand how to make sense of what seems meaningless in Christ because we see the defenseless, innocent death of a victim who didn't deserve it. And he takes upon himself the sins of the world and says, in this, in this you see true humility, in this you see the meaning of life, to give your life for others. It's amazing how everything changes when your focus on life isn't, I can't get what I want. What I want doesn't fulfill me. It all seems meaningless. What if your focus is, what can I give to others? Suddenly life is not meaningless. It's meaningful because there's opportunities everywhere. That's Ecclesiastes. Why did my atheist professor think that Ecclesiastes was such a great book? Well, when you ask somebody who doesn't believe in God to explain why they don't believe in God, one of the most common answers is because of the problem of evil. If there's a good God, why do children get cancer? If there's a good God who makes the world, why are there tsunamis that wipe out hundreds of thousands of people? Explain this to me. Why would a good God allow evil in the world? Now, that's a complicated question. And I think the best Christian answer is not one that tries to make light of it all, put it all in a box that you can easily wrap. The truth is, some of it's very difficult. And my ultimate conclusion is that once you get through all the intellectual objections and explain why it might be possible for a good God to allow a world that has evil, then you have to deal with the emotional side of it. And you end up saying, look, if you can't or you're unwilling or there's some reason why you won't stop it, the next best thing you can do is to come and enter into that world with us and share with us, which is what Christ did. But then you can turn the tables for a second and say, We know what evil is because we know what good is. When you speak of the problem of evil, something is only evil if you're comparing it to something good. When the seagull or the bird comes and grabs a fish in its talons, we don't say it's murdering the fish. We say it's having lunch. Why do we think that human beings ought to be moral? Why do we think that... All these things you list as evil in the world, what makes them evil? Well, there's got to be some standard of goodness. In other words, the problem of evil is a problem for everybody, but Christians have an answer or a way of looking at it because we know what good is. But if you don't believe in God, how do you know what good is? Ecclesiastes says everything is meaningless, and it's a great answer when all that matters in life is me. But when you begin to think that life is about more than me, life becomes meaningful. And this is where Christians see the world differently. And philosophers who are looking for the meaning of life see something interesting in that. Maybe life isn't about getting what I crave. Maybe that's why life seems meaningless. 
more and more the number of statistics show that our young people are living and experiencing more and more meaninglessness. I'd give you the numbers, I'd give you the stats, but it would make you very depressed. But I think the reason why so many young people feel hopeless, one of the reasons, because there's a lot of them, one of the reasons is they have access to a bigger world than they ever had before. You remember when you were fairly innocent during the day about what was going on in the world. But now, within five minutes, you know what's going on everywhere in the world all at the same time. That's overwhelming. But another reason is because when you're being fed every day, the idea that you are nothing but an accident, you were made meaningless. What makes you think anything in the world is meaningful? So our children are living in hopelessness. And what I see in Christ and what I see in Christianity, what I see in the church is a counter narrative. A story that says, actually, life isn't about you. But by giving your life, by giving your life as an intercession, as a ransom, as a sacrifice, you bring meaning to other people's lives, which brings meaning to your life, which brings meaning to the king of the universe who will raise you up and bring meaning to the whole world. It's a different view. Life under the sun is meaningless, but life under the son of God is meaningful. The other book I want to look at tonight is the book of Lamentations. Sounds like it's going to be a depressing evening, but I promise it's not. Ecclesiastes is not a book you want to read on a Monday when you've just been given a pink slip. I understand that. But if Ecclesiastes is the book that says life just seems meaningless, especially when all your craving is going after yourself, Lamentations is the other side of it, which is, but what if you fully, completely, absolutely believe and trust in God, and it's God who seems to be giving you the raw end of the deal? See, in Lamentations, God has used Babylon to judge his people. And let's just say they've done a really good job of it. In Lamentations, the author's crying out, how could this be? In fact, did you know the Hebrew name, the title of the book in Hebrew is, how? How can this be? You're a good God. And you've used the bad people to teach a lesson to your people. And your people, boy, Seems like we should have got the lesson by now. And those of us who did get the lesson would like to, you know, move on to the next step. But everything's in ruin. Everything's in shambles. And I feel like I'm just eating bitterness, wormwood, and I'm getting it straight from you, God. I don't know what to do with this. And then in Lamentations 3, we have one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. And who would think that it shows up right here? It's kind of like one of those desert flowers shows up right in the middle of bitterness. In Lamentations 3, he says, I think about the wormwood, I think about the gall, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who trust in him. 
Lamentations is one of those powerful books because it's written from inside, which is, okay, I know that meaning comes from those who live under God's rule, but I'm living under God's rule and I'm getting the raw end of the deal. And it's a reminder to have the mindset that we see in the story of Job, to have the mindset that we see at the end of Ecclesiastes, the mindset of Christ. Christ who's in the garden of Gethsemane. Christ, if there was anybody in this world deserving of getting the good end of the deal, it's Jesus Christ. Lived a perfect life. Before that, shared glory with the Father. If anyone deserves a good life, the king of glory. The best we could do is to put some palm branches down as he's passing by on the back of a donkey. Something to say, we declare you to be king of kings. And then and then the story is revealed about what he's about to face. And he, there he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's saying to his father, Father, if there's any other way, he is going to be up on the cross, and he's going to be thirsty, and they're going to give him some wine mixed with vinegar. I can't help but think this reminds me of wormwood and gall. Jesus is going to drink the bitter cup, literally and metaphorically. He's going to face it. He's going to deal with it. He's going to experience it. And he doesn't say this on the cross. There's, there's seven sayings on the cross, and they're very short and simple. He doesn't say this on the cross. But quite a bit of time passes. I'm trying to imagine that I'm there, and I'm looking at Christ on the cross, and I'm reflecting on his life and his teaching. And, and these are some things that come to mind. There he was in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning it by saying, you know who's blessed, who's really blessed in this life? It's the ones that you think are cursed. It's the ones that have nothing. It's the ones that are crying and mourning. It's those who are suffering in sorrow and pain. It's those who hunger and thirst. They're actually blessed. And then I see Christ on the cross. Don't understand it. But I see it. I remember when Christ is passing along the way and there's all kinds of rich, well-to-do, well-developed, well-thought-out religious leaders all around him. But the heroes of the stories continue to be the poor older lady who reaches out to touch the hem of his garment to be healed. The, the woman who puts two little copper coins in because it's all she has in the treasury. The man who goes up to the temple to pray. No, not the Pharisee who says, God, I'm so glad you didn't make me like this other guy. I, I do everything right. I do things better than everybody else. And you're pretty lucky to have me. No, it's the other one. The one who knows that he's a sinner. He's called a tax collector. You already know this, but I want to remind, want to remind you. If you're an accountant or something, then you already know how sinful you are. No, the tax collector was known as bad because the tax collector was somebody usually drawn from your own ranks. What Rome would do is he'd find somebody in the, in the church here and he'd pick somebody and say, I want you to work for me and I want you to take money from everybody around you. And it was well known that I'll give you a little kickback. You could take kickbacks and you can keep some money from the people around you. And so you're just a thief. You're, you're drawing out of the pockets of your friends. That's your life. Just imagine what people must think of you. And he's the one who goes up to the temple and he beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. When God comes, when Jesus comes to town and he's, 
walking through the crowd and the crowd wants to be with him. He looks up and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree. And he says, you come down, I'm going to your house today. You too are a son of Abraham. And he's sitting there at the table. The text says Zacchaeus looks at him and says, I am going to pay back everybody I've wronged. I'm going to give them back several times more what I've taken. The heroes of the stories are people who give, not take. People who give. It turns out the secret to a meaningful, happy, blessed life is one that is entirely in service to something greater than yourself, that demands more of yourself than you're often willing to give, that includes difficulty, pain, struggle. We know this because if you want to lift weights and you want to be a bodybuilder, you know there's pain involved in that. So I've heard. Clearly, I don't know. But... There's pain. And you know all the slogan, you know the T-shirts, what the T-shirts say? No pain, no gain. We know it. As you're getting older and there's growing pains, there's difficulties. It turns out that the pain and the suffering and the difficulty, if it's involved in growth, in service, in love, it's far more meaningful than the quick, easy, ready-made. The difficulty it takes in learning how to cook that meal and to do it well results in a meal that tastes so much better than what you can get down the the road. The pain it takes in learning all the wrong ways to put together that thing in your garage you've been working on for a while ends in being able to create some wonderful things for your spouse and for your children that last a long time. They know grandpa made that because you took the time and the effort, and you invest in something, and it takes work and skill and sweat, and it takes more of yourself. It ends up being something meaningful. In the cross, what we see is the most meaningful life, the most blessed life, is the one that looks most cursed because he is completely worn out, completely sold out, completely empty because every bit of it goes to God. The only thing left, the only thing left is his soul. And as you remember, one of his final words were, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Even that, even that goes to you. When you read Ecclesiastes and Lamentations, it's easy to get down. But may I encourage you to lift your eyes. What's happening in this book is we're learning what you are taught to love and to make first in your life. It is the only thing that matters. And every time we deviate from that, the story doesn't end well. Remember it now. The writer of Ecclesiastes actually ends his book by saying, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days draw nigh and you have no pleasure in them. What he's saying is, get it clear in your head before you have to deal with it in life. So when the difficulties come, like muscle memory, you'll rely on him. It's hard to understand. It's hard to see this side of eternity. Under the sun that we see, it is difficult to fully put it together. But our Lord and Master, the teacher of the congregation, who has been here and back and is now on the other side, says you want a blessed life. Seek those things that are above. Where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. And one day he will return in Christ, who is your life, will return and you will be with him in glory. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.